0: During lockdown, I received cocktails from some of the world's best bars delivered right to my door. Who should cycle them over to me at a moment's notice? None other than the drinks legend, who is my guest today. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Many of you who filled out my Lush Life survey Asked for more interviews with industry legends. Well, here you go. Fabrice Lamont is at your service. He has too many titles to list here, and most of them are managing partner and co-founder. Scotch and Lamont, Highball Brands, The Drinks Drop, just to name a few. How did it happen that he was delivering those cocktails to me? Well, you'll have to listen to the episode, won't you? For those of you who haven't completed my Lush Life survey, head over to LushLifemanual.com slash survey dash 2022 and please fill it out. But wait until after this app. Now, let's join Fabrice. When I first started podcasting, I would say, okay, we're going to start from the beginning. And I kind of want to know that with you. So just to start off, why don't you tell me where you grew up and a little bit about your upbringing?
1: So, yes, I'm the most common type of person, which is a French Yorkshireman. I was raised in Sheffield from from about three years old. My parents are both French. I moved over from my father's from Brittany. My mom's from Calais. They met when they were working in, um, in a hotel. My mom was a receptionist. My dad was working in the restaurant my dad spent. A long time trying to woo my mum. She was playing. She was a student, make it easy for him, but apparently his his nice knitwear won the, won the day. So so they were working together. It was in Brittany and decided to move to England. This was in in the mid sixties. They were very young. They just got married, twenty-two years old, something like that, and decided to move to England, which was, you know, quite a big thing in the sixties to decide. You know, we're going to move over there. We're going to. We want to experience a new culture. We want to learn the language. We want to see what's there for us. Their families were like, "Why are you going to England? France is amazing." Blah blah.
0: I'm thinking the same thing myself. Like, who would do that? You just it's the opposite. You know, you you hear Brits moving.
1: Yeah, and I'm <laughs> seeing here in France. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they, they they moved to England just. But it was just because they wanted an adventure and, you know, that stayed with them all their lives. So they moved to England in, in the mid-60s, originally to Bolton, where they worked again in a, in a restaurant together. My mum was on reception. My dad was in the restaurant as a waiter. They stayed in Bolton for a while. They had my two eldest sisters, Sophie and Natalie, then decided to move back to France towards Calais, which is where my mum's from. So they stayed up there and they stayed around 18 months and then thought, you know what? I think there's more for us in the UK. And from a hospitality standpoint, I think they felt there was a a bigger opportunity for them. I I think they felt with, you know, coming from France, there was more of a, there was something quite exotic about it, about them. They saw an opportunity to do more in the UK than maybe in France. So they came back. And they had Cammy, who we'll probably speak a bit more about, uh, my other sister, all three of them older than me. And then me, the baby boy, turned up nine years after my elder <laughs> sister. So, uh, yeah, the favorite son. So, yeah, I mean, kind of raising. Of uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Raised in hospitality. I moved to Sheffield when I was three. So yeah, so that's kind of that, you know, I don't really remember Barrow at all, but um, we were raised in a, in a hotel restaurant. Then the, the, the cellar was converted into a, a French wine bar called Michel's Bar, Michel being my dad. And my first job, I love it. my first job was was in Michel's Bar. I didn't have a paper round. my, to earn my pocket money. I used to clean the cellar and I used to restock the bar fridges on a Saturday morning. And clean the glass wash machine. So that's how I used to earn my pocket money. Uh, and I did that from probably too young until I was about 15. Then I got my nasty insurance number when I was 15. And my parents said, that's time for you to go upstairs to the restaurant, get a waistcoat, get a bow tie, and you need to start that silver service. So, yeah, 15, I started uh, silver service waiting in the restaurant.
0: So, were your parents the kind of French parents who would give you a little wine with water? Or did you have that? That introduction to wine really early?
1: I do remember there being a booze at all because 'cause we'd be back in France growing up. I mean, my dad's from a big family. He's got six brothers and four sisters. So I have a lot of uncles, aunties, cousins. And and summertime was back in 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 France. I'd be, you know, I'd be spending weeks with, you know, I just basically farmed off and, and spend the summer holidays with one of my cousins, which was great. You know, it's fantastic. But yeah, there was always wine around uh, a little bit. You know, my mum and dad were very, they were quite open with that. We had a different relationship with alcohol, I guess, when I was younger. But yeah, there was always a little bit of wine at the table. Uh, we were allowed to drink that, not from two younger mm-hmm. age, but there was a little bit of wine and water.
0: So were you excited to go upstairs and put on yeah. that bow tie and start silver service? Or were you like, oh God, just... I was
1: terrified. <laughs> so uh, we've met a few times um, and believe it or not, I was the shyest person Ever as a child, I mean, painfully shy to the point where I would ma- I would be rude to people because I'd rather be rude to them. So as I have to speak to them. have to speak to strangers, I couldn't bear speaking to anyone I didn't know. My confidence was bad. I just didn't. I couldn't speak to strangers. I didn't want to deal. Very painfully shy as a kid, and I think that was part of the reason my my mum particularly wanted me to go upstairs to the restaurant because she knew it would do me wonders in in you know building my confidence. And and it, and it absolutely was one hundred percent the best thing. I did was to get up there. I still remember the first day I worked in the restaurant. It was table eight. It was a table of three. And the first thing I had to do, Ruth, who was the restaurant manager says, okay, you know, cause I was obviously there was someone following me and telling me what to do. And I had to go and clear the starters from this table. That simple. Just take the starter plates away and take them into the kitchens. You know, I mean, it's baby steps, right? It's not hard and I refuse to do it. I refused to do it. I was like, I'm not doing it. I don't I'm not going over to that table. I don't want to speak to them. I don't I said, Well, this is what you've got to do now. I mean, I remember the table number, I remember how many people were there, and I remember what course I was clearing. It's ingrained on me. It's still such a vivid memory. But I mean that from there it kind of bit by bit it got better and better. I mean, it's fantastic. I yeah. loved it. That's when I was bitten by the hospitality book. I mean, although I was raised around it and, you know, spent a lot of time in the kitchens, I used to love spending time with the chefs. So, you know, I was always curious about food and flavor from a very young age. My mom actually said out of the four, the four kids, I was the one, even at home, that would always be in the kitchen, always pull up a chair, and was always the one asking my mom about food, the most out of the four of us. So i have clearly always had something, you know, in me about food and flavor and just that kind of, you know, creative side.
0: So, did you think that you wanted to be a chef, or did you know what you want, or have no. a restaurant? Or no, I was going to
1: be—I was going to be a furniture designer. Yeah.
0: Oh, I thought you said you always wanted to be in hospitality.
1: Well, I, I, clearly there was something that was in there, but I just didn't realize. You know, it was—it was hiding, um, and bit by bit. <laughs> You know, from that, when I started to enjoy the restaurant, you know, 15, 16, 17, I wasn't the most academic at school. I struggled with focus and concentration. I, I could get the grades, but I couldn't really spend the time probably on doing what I, what needed to be done to get them. Originally, when I was younger, I wanted to be an architect, an interior designer. They want to spend time at art college. Like, no, I'm going to be a furniture designer. But at this time, I was getting older, 17 and then I went to work, when I turned 18, I, I stopped working for my parents uh, and I went to work at a bar in town in Sheffield City, which was kind of like quite a cool bar. And that was, that was when it changed for me. My first bar job was like, this is amazing.
0: That was when you were at, at school for furniture design? At,
1: at art college, yeah, I was doing, I was doing um, general art and design. At yeah. the, and the plan was to then move on to, to university to focus in products and furniture design. I, I deferred going to university. I never went. I never went.
0: when you went to work for the bar, were you just like bar back?
1: What what were you doing? I started as a bartender, and on the floor a little bit, and then I moved. They wanted me to then become bar supervisor within about three months of, of being there. Probably because I, I don't know. I mean, I'd been surrounded by hospitality all my life, and then I'd been working in in it from fifteen, and so I'd probably had quite a bit of experience, even though I was quite young. <laughs> And then I became the bar supervisor there uh, and stayed there for a couple of years. Then I moved to Oxford and I worked at a place called the Lemon Tree in Oxford.
0: What was it about your first foray into bars that you thought, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is it. This is it. I forget the furniture design.
1: Well, I think, I mean, I'd gone from being a painfully shy person to being a really sociable person through those years. so, but when I started working in this city centre bar, it was really lively. It was full of really cool people, and you know, starting to feel as though there was there was something really energetic and feeding off that, and being around people. I just that's what I wanted. I realised that's what I wanted to do. I really enjoyed finishing a, a, of an evening and just sitting back and going, "Wow, we gave those people such a good night." And it's this, it's a, it's an incredible feeling and that's probably started earlier on you know I mean I remember tables when they compliment on the food or compliment on the service I even remember you know that being like yeah that was great they had a really good night that's because of us because of as a team you know so it had an impact but being around that kind of people more my age and being in that bar environment I mean it's still now it never leaves you you know even even all these years later I mean sometimes I still miss that that kind of feeling it's there's, there's nothing like it
0: your folks because they had been in it, did they see it as a viable future for you? And did you see it as a viable viable future for you as well?
1: My parents—they well, just wanted the four of us to be happy. You know, whatever whatever we decided to go oh, into, they wanted us to be happy. They never really want hospitality was never something they they wanted to push us down because it's long days, it's unsociable hours, it's it's challenging. Now, my parents did it as a as a couple they were you know they, they they ran the business together they were able to work they spent time because they were working together and they would be able to take time off together and that, et cetera et cetera so they were able to navigate some of those challenges themselves as a partnership they you know, they're fully aware that if you are one side going into hospital that's that's in the hospitality and the other side isn't, it can be really, it can be really challenging. And I certainly felt that a bit later on in, in life and in and in my kind of career history, but um, they never really forced us down it. But like I said, they would just wanted us to be happy. Sophie and Natalie, my other two sisters, they worked in the restaurant as well. Growing up as we all did, they went on to other things. Cami also worked. She worked downstairs at Michelle's bar, and then she went off to uh, she went off to do music production at university. She's the only other one that went into hospitality. My sister owned a place called the Charles Lamb in London. Uh, a pub in Islington for many years. She was a partner in 69 Colbert Row as well, and also did a lot of work at at Zeta Townhouse for Mark and Michael. She's also has her own Vermouth brand out now, or is it a partner in a Vermouth brand, London Vermouth Company? So she's a partner in that, and she's even managed to get the family name on there as well, which is quite nice. And she's also also part of the team behind Intune, uh, which is a, a CBD soft drink. So in some ways, I me and Cammy have kind of taken a, um, a similar route. In fact, that you know we're very passionate about hospitality, and have carried on down down that route with bars, restaurants, and I've ended up in where kind of where Cammy is now, and obviously where where I am now.
0: Your your sister, how Cammy? How much older is she than you?
1: Twenty months.
0: Oh, oh! I thought you said there was nine years difference.
1: Nine years between Sophie's Suf, the eldest. Nine years between me and Sophie. Seven <laughs> years between me and Natalie. Then my mum and dad paused for five years, then had Cammy and then they had me. So there's kind of two, oh. like, then a break, then two.
0: All right, so the two youngest, the two, yeah, because <laughs> I was well, there goes. My I was like, Oh, well, you saw she was so much older and you saw her doing that, but forget that. No, forget that line of thinking. <laughs> All right, so go on. Then you came down south and you went to Oxford.
1: So I was in Oxford and worked with uh, I worked at the Lemon Tree. There's a couple, I think, I think Jars Looker was working there as well when I was there. He was uh, a busboy or something, and Jeevan, who's also Mr. Jeevan now, he does event stuff. He's he was working there and. Uh, So yeah, so I was there, I was there briefly in Oxford, then somebody called me to come back to Sheffield to open a nightclub, which I was 20 years old. And I opened a nightclub in Sheffield for someone. And it was really weird. I was 20 years old and we had an over 21s door policy. (laughs) And that was my first, that was my first license application actually was for a nightclub in Sheffield. Uh, That was my first time in court for a nightclub application. and I remember being absolutely terrified. But the only question that I was asked while I was in court when I gave my name and the application was, are you any relation to Michel Limon? I'm his son. And I went, okay, well, we can't see there being a problem with the license. (laughs) It was granted. Hey, fabulous. And that was fun. So I was back to Sheffield briefly, but realized actually, you know, I don't want to be doing nightclubs I, I was missing the bar side of things and if I wanted to take it seriously it's got to be London so yeah I moved mm-hmm. to London in 1996 late 96 I think it was 20 yeah. years old
0: yeah that's pretty early in the bar scene it was oh. you know if we think of like this cocktail yeah. renaissance revolution whatever you want to call it that's pretty early you, you know I think you know 2003 that kind of time at least when I left New York and kind of, it started then it started here about then. So 96, when you were thinking, if I want to be serious about this, I've got to go to London. What in your mind was being serious?
1: Well, taking, doing what I was doing was, was great. And I, I I think in the back of my mind, it was always like, this is great for now. I'm loving what I'm doing, but it was starting to get to a point. It's like, yeah, I want to do more of this. Am I going to, am I really going to go to university and do furniture? probably not now i've realized this is this is where i want to be so if this is where i want to be let's go down and see what what it's all about so it was that kind of conversation i was was young you know i mean but if i was going to university i need to go down and 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 have an education i need to further my education my education was going to be in hospitality so it had to be it had to be london and it was really exciting then you know we were we were having a lot of fun. We were really start paving the way for bartending and w- where it is now. We were, we were making a lot of things up, but we were, you know, we were challenging ourselves. We were, it, I mean, London was kind was, of in the 90s, was, was a very different place. It was, it was super exciting. Ben Reed was over at the Met. Alex Cameling was down at Detroit. Yeah, Henry and Dre were kicking around. And yeah, it was good fun. It was really good fun. My first place, though, wasn't in a cool bar. It was in, it was in a Doan Cafe, which is on Upper Street like a French, French cafe, part of the Cafe Rouge group. That was my first job in London. And it was 25 pounds for a, for a shift. So I was getting paid in London, which was not a lot of money. I really needed a job in London. I didn't have one. I really needed one. And I was just, look, I just needed to get somewhere because I needed to, I needed to pay rent. I needed to be in, I needed to be here and I'd figure it out. And no one, I was leaving my CV everywhere, but I was just happy to say I just wanted a job. But because I had like bar supervisor, I had like club manager and stuff on there. I think they were kind of, I was being dismissed and I remember li- leaving my CV at this cafe on Upper Street and saying, and leaving it. And then I went back a couple of hours later and said, look, I know my CV might, I know you're looking for a bartender and my CV might say, I'm, I've got a bit more experience. I literally just want to be a bartender. That's just, that's, that's all I need to do. And they're like, well, we did read it and think, yeah, you are probably not really, you're going to be bored of this job. And I said, just give me a go. And they did. So that was great. So they, uh, so that was my first job at the dome in islington then i went on to become a system uh, manager at the one in covent garden and joint licensee of the one in covent garden when i was 21 and so then i was in town that was that was great start to meet more people starting out all the guys from Duffer and and the you know everyone was drinking down the coaching horses and it was all very cool and great and oh, this is london challenging because it was you know i had, no, had no money <laughs> but you know i was feeling really good about it uh and that's where i met the guys who owned uh, ricky Ticks. In Soho, they opened Ricky Ticks in about 90, 94, 95, maybe. And that was kind of the, one of the first backstreet Soho kind of cocktail bars. And, you know, very music forward. Chemical Brothers, who were just breaking, they were like the resident DJs on a Saturday. And Paul White, he did all the artwork and the graphics for, for Bjork. And it was a really cool bar. Tubbs, who used to do the door at, uh, at Ricky Ticks. I remember he used to stand on a beer crate. So he, was, so he was on the corner of Bateman Street and Greek Street, and he used to stand on the corner. And Bateman Street was was blocked. You could not get down Bateman Street because mm-hmm. everyone wanted to be in Ricky And he'd stand on on a beer crate with his trilby, and he'd just be like, "You, do you, you, and you," uh, you know. But it was that, you know, it was that time where people were queuing to get in Met Bar, people were queuing to get Enrique Ticks, people were queuing to get in these kind of spoke spaces, and they could do what they want. I mean, he was. I remember one night he turned down Quentin Tarantino. He's like, "I don't like what you're wearing, so you and you can't come." <laughs> You know, it was that, but it was like that, you know, (laughs) it wasn't, the choice wasn't there. There was so much energy. There was so much fun to be had. So that was Ricky Ticks. I didn't work at that one. I opened their new bar called LED, which was in Clarkenwell, just off, um, just off Exworth Market opposite the Quality Chop House. So, yeah, and we had, we were open in the daytime, so we had a kind of cafe restaurant upstairs and then, and then the bar downstairs. And the design was kind of like daytime, nighttime, so it was all red and black downstairs. Again, all really cool graphics and very kind. Very fun. Um, so I was there for opened LED in ninety seven ninety eight. I think that was then down to Brighton. We opened Ricky Ticks in Brighton in ninety nine in Bond Street, which was fun. Thought it'd be a bit more laid back in Brighton, but my God, that
0: must have been a uh, blast.
1: We had a lot. I mean, it it went up a notch in Brighton, and then it was great fun. So that was good. Yeah, I think Ricky Ticks was you know that was that was a fun bar to do, and we had some good times down there. Then went on to, then I went to France actually, did a bar in the French Alps in Val d'Isère, did a season out there. That was good. And then came back and moved back to Sheffield. The calling, Yorkshire was calling and opened a bar called Solar in Sheffield. So now we're in, we're, we're in, we're in the noughties now. It's 2000 that was, end of 2000.
0: Now all this time, are you, are you bartending? When you say opening a bar, are you bartending? Are you managing the bar? What is it that's driving you on? You know what? What are you learning, and 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 what is keeping you in? Is it just the the fun of it, or you know how did you feel that your uh, the your career was progressing? So, so I was assistant
1: manager at Dome. Then when we opened LED and Clark and Well, I was assistant manager there, and then Ricky Tix, I was the GM. So by this point, I'm twenty three, twenty four, and you know, I mean these were. So young, so young, really young, probably too young. But, you know, I'm just, just, I was fortunate to have, you know, the experience I had from a young age, not just, you know, being in the restaurant for 15, but I think being around it and working downstairs in in, in Michelle's bar of a really young age and being around that environment and watching. And every day I'd be, you know, I'd be in the bar, I'd be in the restaurant and you're just watching it, being immersed in it. So I was fortunate that things would have probably came quite naturally to me. And the same for Cammy as well. She said the same. What feels natural to us because we were immersed in it, and we've we've watched other people work. It's like why can't they just figure, why can't they do this? Why can't they do that? And we forget that it's just for us. It was it was normal, you know. I mean, I remember my dad moaning about him when when we could smoke in, inside. You know, I mean, when my dad would be up at six in the morning, he'd walk around. he would be picking litter in the car park. You know, if, if there's any ever any more than three cigarettes in an ashtray, I mean, it was you just wouldn't do it. You never leave. You know, if you never walk past a. Never walk past a table empty handed. You always, you never walk to and from somewhere without nothing in your hands. It's all, all of these little things that, you, you know, you, you kind of pick up when you're young, it never leaves you. And little tips of, you know, how, how to communicate with customers and never lose eye contact and all of these things. And, you know, some, some guys that I trained in, in the nineties that went, went on some fantastic things and opened some great bars. And, you know, some of the things that I said to them in the nineties when they were starting out as bartenders, they said that they never forgot. So by the time I was 23, 24, I'd got quite a lot of experience. And I think the driving force was to stay in it, was to keep on learning more, was to keep on. I think being immersed in the industry was about wanting to give something back, give something back to people. There was something about creating a space that gives memories. And and I think that's what was driving me. I wanted to do more for, I want this, there was something quite addictive about the bars and the environment and and seeing people leave with having such happy memories and those, that's what I wanted to do more of. I wanted to do more of that and being fortunate enough to open these venues and be involved in that from a young age was really exciting, you know, from doing opening a nightclub at 20 years old to then uh, LED to Ricky Ticks, you know, it was super exciting and and to be fortunate to have, to have done all of that. So, I mean, the next progression was obviously to open, open my own, my own place after doing all of that stuff and, and that was kind of the next step at 20, 25 years old, I my first bar with a little bit of cash.
0: And was that the one in Sheffield?
1: Yeah, Lions, I opened, not, not Solo. Sol I opened again, another opening that I did from scratch. I mean, that was when old Theme Magazine was still doing, we were in, I think we, we were up for best drinks menu, best bar team, best new bar, and all of this kind of things. And people like, Sheffield, how can Sheffield be up for all of these awards? It was one of those where I pulled a yeah. lot of. I pulled a lot of favors in. It was early 2000s and from my friends down in London and, you know, diesel, which was obviously still a cool brand back then. And diesel, I managed to get them to sponsor all the staff uniforms. So all the guys that were in, we had all our, own, um, you know, diesel jeans and diesel shirts and the guys on the door were in diesel puffers. And, you know, I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty cool for, for anywhere, but for it to be in Sheffield on the building was super cool. Tim, yeah. who's, Tim, who I opened the bar for, he was one of the partners. He's still a very, very good friend of mine. as actually it's my, son's, my son's godfather. You know, he did such an incredible job on the interior. It was just a really cool cutting-edge bar in Sheffield. Um, but yeah, from, from there, the next plan was it was going to have to be my own place. Uh, and that was a place called Lion's Lair. I bought, I bought an old pub in, in Sheffield City Centre, which was called the Yorkshire Grey. The Yorkshireman's Arms. The Yorkshireman's Arms. And it used to it was an old rockers pub. It was owned by um the guitarist from Def Leppard who were also from Sheffield. And uh, so I bought this this old pub in in, in the town centre. So I was gonna do like um like a quite a foodie, you know, a gastro pub, which was where are we now? Two thousand and two, two thousand and three. Hadn't really it was a starting to become a thing in London. It hadn't really become a thing outside of London. A lot of the people in Sheffield were like, why has Fabrice bought this crappy run down old boozer? He's obviously lost his Mind, it was drinking too much tequila or
0: something.
1: <laughs> uh, completely renovated it. You know, very kind of like flock wallpaper back then. It was you know, it was you know, stripped out the floor to oak floors, flock wallpaper, like oxblood leather booths. We had a fire in there. I mean, it was a made it into a really cool pub. I you know, I'd had someone design my own kind of crest with two lions and a chair because lions' lair means chair. It was my nod back to London. It's all about chair and sitting down and eating and drinking and socializing. So it was a trying to you know, probably a, a bit too out there, but made sense to me. So that was my first, yeah, my my first business which was yeah with about eight and a half thousand pounds and a, and a bank loan which when you know you could still get those and you could still open venues on the tube so it's very lucky and that was yeah, 2003 2004 maybe uh we were the i was in the got into the michelin guide in 2005 which wasn't planned so that was quite exciting i think we wanna we uh, So one of the first in South Yorkshire, one of the only gastropubs in South Yorkshire. A year later, I bought the cricket. which on the edge of Sheffield in Door, Totley, uh, an old kind of farmhouse. Did a similar thing there. Uh, beautiful beautiful old farmhouse. So I did the cricket pub and dining room. So pub on one side and dining room on the other. That as well got in the Michelin Guide. So I got a surprise from the local radio and they came to see me at Lion's Land and said, what's it like to be one of the only two? Gastro pubs to be listed in in the Michelin guide. I said, oh, that's really. I didn't know. I'm not. I'm not. I wasn't aware of it. I mean, I am not more of the Michelin guy, but you know, I don't run my business to be there. and My business to make customers happy and and you know, bumps on seats and etc. So, which is the other one? I said, oh, it was the cricket. Well, that one's mine as well. So it turned out I, I own the only two gastro pubs in all of South Yorkshire that were in the Michelin guide at twenty <gasps> twenty seven years old.
0: So obviously, you had you had a knack for this. And you, everything was going as planned, you know, you, you had your bar you're in the mission guide for a gastropub. What did you think could follow that?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was all, it, I mean, it was, it was great, but it's, anybody will tell you who's in hospitality, it's, it's hard work. It's, it's really hard work and to get where you want to do. And if you have standards, you have to put the time in. And I think it was getting to a point where it was, it was affecting my, my standards. And what I wanted to achieve were probably affecting my how I was living. Was probably starting to make some of the wrong choices. I wanted to keep pushing, I wanted to keep pushing, but you can't do that when you're working fourteen hours a day, seven days a week. So at thirty decided to, to sell them. And that was, you know, and then I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was very proud of what I'd done, but I realized that I can't keep on going this way because I'm 30 years old. If I keep on pushing this hard, I might not make it to 40. So, uh, it was time to take the foot off the gas a bit and, and, and take a break. Cause you know, doing it from 15 and then into London and. And it was just go, 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 go. There was never really let off. There was no gap here. There was no traveling. There was no real, you know, it was, it's, it's, as anybody would tell you, you know, I'm I'm not, I'm not expecting anyone to pull the violin out for me. It was, it's, it's it's the nature of hospitality. There's, you know, millions of great people all around, all around the world who are, who are doing exactly the same thing, but it is, it is hard work. And I was one of the lucky ones that, that managed to make, um, you know, make a business out of it, but, uh, yeah, 30 decided time to, time to take the foot off the gas. And I was actually at a friend's, um, it was a friend's 30th birthday. I took some time off and it was uh, a friend of mine, John Gakuru, who was in London. He used to run Match Bar in Soho, the, iconic, the iconic bar. So he, he's originally from Kenya. So for his 30th, we went to, to Kenya. So there was a group of us and we were, and if it was that time we were on the beach and John was like, oh, we're, you know, we're 30 now. I turned 30 this was in November, I turned 30 in June. We were like, where are we going to be when we're 40? And it was sitting on a beach and just stopping and going, I don't know where, I don't know where I'm going to be at 40. I don't want to be, I can't be doing this because I'll just, I'll be, I'll be done. So I said to John at that, I said, I'm going to do Christmas and New Year and I'm going to, I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and sell. In February, I put it on, the I put the business on the market and um, by May it was done. So that was it. Didn't know what I was going to do.
0: Were you really scared?
1: Yeah. yeah, it was. Uh, it was daunting, but also quite enlightening at the same time. It had to happen; it needed to. It needed to happen. I wasn't. I, I was getting to the point where I wasn't. It's. It's a hard ind- It's. It's the best industry in the world, but it's one of the hardest when you're not, when you can't give it your all because you're on show the whole time you're there. And if you can't, and if it, things are starting to get frustrating, you, there's nowhere. There's nowhere to hide. And it's not fair if you're not, if you can't give it your all. It's not fair on your customers. It's not fair on your employees. It's not fair on, you you know, you've got to, it's not fair on yourself. So it was, it was daunting, but it was definitely the right thing to do. It's definitely times I wasn't, you know, I wasn't particularly happy at that point. So it was the right, right thing to do, but scary. And that's when I started. Yeah. So that was done in, this was 2007 bearing in mind just before the world. I mean, I know the world is going to be a bit of a tangle now, but 2007 and then we hit we had a pretty nasty recession in late 2007, 2008. So I managed to get out at just the right time, I think. Uh, I was very lucky to get out when I did.
0: So how long did you kind of faff around before deciding what the next step was?
1: I started working for my wine merchant because he said, what are you going to do? I was like, I don't know. Do do? I moved to Leeds. That's what I did. I, when I was done in Sheffield, I moved to Leeds. And I started working for my wine merchant in she- who was from Sheffield who wanted to try and do more business in Leeds. I was like, well, I'll have a go. never sold wine before. And it uh, turns out it's really, really hard. <laughs> really hard. Um, yeah, I mean, that was uh, a couple of months of hard work. <laughs> and I then caught up with John, who was working on Sagatiba at the time, and um, Nick Gillett who was also who he'd worked with on Sagatiba, was setting up Mangrove Brands, which is a distribution agency in, in the UK. He was setting up that with yeah, John Kirk, of course. and they were looking for someone in the, uh, for the north and John said, you should speak to Fabrice. So I met Nick, we had a conversation and they came down to London to meet. I mean, met Matt actually, not John. And, uh, and that was that I was, I was Mangrove. So we set up Mangrove in October, 2007. So, it kind of happened. it just seemed to flow. It was very fortunate,
0: very. and Mangrove was one of the f- and and correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of the first really distributors of spirits outside the box, yeah, it
1: was it was great. I, I mean, I didn't know I wanted to go into 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 sales. And and certainly down into that brand development side, it wasn't it wasn't part of of the plan. But you know, life takes takes you where it wants to take you, and you have to sometimes go with it and um, and embrace opportunities when when they arrive. And that's certainly what what I did with this role. And had such a good time working with Nick and John. Five years I was there, uh, and you know, growing build, building that business, growing that business. I looked after everything from Birmingham to Inverness, so pretty much you know everything outside of London was was me, and we had. A, a small a much smaller portfolio when we launched but a really like you said a really exciting portfolio and i think it was an exciting time i guess for me it almost felt like it was mirroring what i had done in the bars in the 90s all of a sudden i'm doing a similar thing with that innovation and being part of this new kind of exciting movement with with the brand development and, and introducing uh new brands to the to the market and still being involved in such an amazing industry and getting out to bars and talking to them. And yeah, it turned out that years in hospitality and obviously the, the commercial side of it, managing businesses and owning, uh, owning my own you know, with some success, not a lot of success, but you know I got through it. The commercial side of it, it turns out I'm quite good at selling. So and I actually quite like it. So that was it. But yeah, five years with Mangrove. And we, you know, like I said, really happy memories, really good brands and just such a good time.
0: You know, you've kind of answered this, but I was going to ask if it gave you that same high that you got from running a bar or being in that moment, because I'm sure that's it's quite an addictive feeling being at the right bar at the right time, working there, being super proud and then going to work kind of corporate using, you know, inverted commas and trying to get that same level of energy.
1: Yes. It, uh, there is definitely this. It's the same but different. To be in that environment, we're still getting the same kind of enjoyment, for sure. I guess the difference being from when you're one side. Oh, this is. I mean, it's, this was for me. I mean, I kind of speak about for myself. When I was working in the bars and restaurants, or only in the bars and restaurants, that feeling of having someone giving someone a great night, and memories with with friends and family was, you know, it was a fantastic feeling at the end of the night. That that's that feeling of of achievement was always great with. Moving into mangrove, and I think you're saying that corporate side, uh, Nick and John were great because although we were ambitious with what we wanted to achieve with the business, they were very understanding and just kind of let me get on with it. So it didn't feel as though it was, you know, they they trusted me to get on and get the job done, and, and I believe I did, you know, certainly did a good job for. Them. It, yes, it was a different, you know, step in. That in fact, it was yes, more of a nine to five. First thing that was weird was having all this free time, not knowing what to do weekends, not knowing what to do evenings. Evenings actually was in it was ended up working. I just ended up being out and working and socializing and networking and all of that kind of stuff, because it's what it's what you do, it's how you get it's how you get ahead in in what I was doing. But yeah, the difference is, or well, for me, the experience said, so the pleasure of, of someone having a great evening through food and drink to being in a bar and watching the bartenders using your product and make the drinks for the customers who are having a great night. So there's still that enjoyment, and there was certainly the pleasure of going into a bar and seeing the brand. And I still get it now, obviously with, with the business I have now, probably more so because it's my you know my, my business and, and I have very very good relations with our brands. But seeing the brands on the back bar, seeing the drinks on a menu, it's such a great feeling. It's great, and and watching seeing how creative bartenders are and how they're using these products. You know it never ceases to amaze me. I love it, you know, so still getting that same that that same energy you know as it was in mangrove all the way through to to now and what fifteen years later
0: now let's not that we're fast forwarding, but going to you working for yourself with yeah. um scotch and them on yeah. and then um highball brands the drink straw mm. you know you were just ready to go out on your own again
1: there was a uh... Y- yes. So when I was at, at Mangrove, I was approached by a couple of a couple of different companies that wanted me to go and work for them. One of them I decided to go with was called Quintessentially, which is a luxury lifestyle concierge company. A little bit left field, but they were wanting to set up their own drinks, spirits, luxury spirits business called Quintessentially Spirits, where they would have a luxury vodka, luxury gin, luxury portfolio spirits, all called Quintessentially. Which they would market through their vast database of high net worth and obviously their relationship they have with venues by bringing by, you know, sending their members to to venues around the UK and and then globally. So I went over to head that up as MD and it was different for sure. It was not quite what I thought it was going to be. It was an experience. I was there 18 months uh, and then decided it wasn't, it wasn't right. Uh, Personal development wise was great. You know, all experiences are are good experiences, in my opinion, and and I, and I definitely took plenty from that to move into what happened next, which was deciding to go actually, I want to go work, I work for myself. After that experience, it's probably what pushed me into it. So, and it started with, as all good ideas start with a pint in a pub, and it was with uh, a dear friend of mine, Barry Wilson, who was at Diageo and had been at Diageo for gosh 10 years when we started having this discussion barry and i had known each other through the industry for quite a while as you know our industry is very close knit we'd known each other for a while and uh, you know we were just chatting and he was he was obviously doing great things at at diageo but i think he was starting to think about you know what does he want to do does he want to progress through through the big corporate machine Does he want to try doing his own thing i was looking at doing something different so we kind of pooled our ideas and thought well why don't we have a go doing it together. And that's where Scotch Limon was born. That was in 2000. And, on, my, my memory's going now. I think it was 2013, 14. I don't
0: know. Yes, because I, I, think that's the, I think that's when I knew about you for the first time. Okay. Because I remembered that Jamie Jones. Yes. Yes, who won the Diageo World Class for the UK. I remember all of a sudden he was working for you. In some respect, and I was like, "Oh, that card! I know that card. Oh, that person. Yes, I think so. That must have been around 2016, 2017, something like that. I can't remember when he won. Yeah, I think it was 2017 or something.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, we started in about 2014. Jamie joined us in about. Will it be about 2017? Maybe 2018 because he went to work for Jason Atherton. Uh, I don't know, he was working at Jason Atherton when he when he okay. won. Of course, he was. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I mean, I right. know. Just so, so, so Barry and I had known each other for a while. We decided to set up Scotchy Mall, which is, you know, our kind of creative marketing agency where we help big brands, small brands. I guess the reason we, the reason the conversation went the way it did is because Barry's come from a big co- a corporate background. You know, he understands big brands, big budgets, global marketing, how to communicate on on that level. I understood how. A bit more, kind of smaller budgets, a bit more guerrilla, a bit more underground. How do you how do you seed brands in a market with in in a different way and a bit more of a commercial side? So we believe that what we had collectively and what we could offer brands was much more exciting, because the smaller brands are trying to think big, and they want to start thinking big from day one. We can we can help them with both of that with both both of those elements. Bigger brands that are losing market share, smaller brands and not really understanding how they can get back into that. So we're helping them with their, with how they do that, with their kind of, with their drink strategy and one thing or another. And, you know, I mean, we've had some great projects over the years. Obviously we helped Ben develop and, and launch Seedlit, which was, which was great fun. Obviously Barry, Barry um, set up world-class when he was at, was, when he was at Santiago, that was his baby that he, that he set up back in the day and um, still does some work on that. We have, you know, we still work for TIGO, we've done some great work for Campari, for for White Mackay and Dalmore. Some really fun stuff that we do there. Some smaller brands as well. Regal Road, we've had a lot of fun with over the years. Pink Pepper, we had. We did a lot of work establishing them back in the day. So some, you know, a real variation of brands and, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. Out of doing some of that kind of sales advocacy, getting some of the brands recognized through Minor Barry's network within the industry and trying to help brands get in front of the right bars and bartenders. They were looking started to ask for full distribution. And it's, you know, that was not why we set up Scott Gilliam on. So we said, no, you say no again. You say no a third time. You think, hang on a minute. There's something in this, you know, we know what we're doing. And, and uh, you know, the number of, Number of distributors had grown significantly from when we set up Mangrove back in 2007. You know, we're talking six, seven years later now. But you know, we were we were recommending some distributors to to these brands. The the ones that we would definitely recommend, uh, you know, the Mangroves and the likes were, and, and the casks and stuff. Their portfolios are normally full. So you'd find yourself sometimes having to work with other distributors who are still doing the best they can. They're still doing it, doing a good job, but maybe they're working in a different way. To we would generally work, so that's why we thought. Well, you know what? We're going to do this. Let's do it ourselves. We know how to do it. We're, you know, involved in mangrove from right from the beginning, from from day one before it was even it had a name. And Highball was born. 2017, I think it was. So Highball Brands was the next business, which is full importing and distribution company. And yeah, and those brands in there are we going from strength to strength. Most of the ones that are with us now been with us from from the beginning. Takamaka being one of them. I know you I know you know Takamaka well. We were having some drinks on the roof only the other week. Fanny Fugia, mm-hmm. Super Sour from Deluxe Distillery. We have the Virtuous Vodka Organic Rye from Sweden. We have Dangerous Don, of course, great uh, mezcal from, from Oaxaca with Sears behind that brand. Yeah, A really good kind of small, compact, but well-considered portfolio. We, we're fortunate with Highball, I guess, Susan, in the fact that, Scotch one was our bread and butter we had we'd set up that business it was doing well it was keeping the lights on it was paying you know paying the rent paying the mortgage um so highball we could take our time with it to do it in the right way it was a business to make money you don't need a business to business to not make money but we wanted to do we want to set up a distribution company that the brands work together as a family you know sometimes you can find you can see in a, in a, in a, portfolio and I, you understand why, because business is business, but sometimes a portfolio is put together because you need to put brands in there because you need to make money. We were fortunate in the fact that we could take our time with it because we wasn't, we didn't necessarily need to make money in year one, year two, year three. We, we were in this for the long game. So we didn't rush to bring in agave. We didn't rush to bring in whiskeys. We didn't rush to, you know, I mean, we were off at plenty, but did they fit what was already in there? You know, I mean, I've been out selling. I didn't want our sales guys to go, oh, look at Takamaka. Oh, look at this. Oh, look at that. And then, and then at the end of it, oh, by the way, do you want to try this? And almost feeling a little bit awkward about bringing it out. And, you know, you, you tend to lose, as someone is, sales, you tend to lose a bit of respect when you do that with some of your customers because they're like, come on, really? But at the end of the day, you're just doing your job. You've got to do your job. Um, and you understand why people do it, but it's very hard. It's it's a very hard thing to do. And I wouldn't want to put that on any of my sales guys to, to have to do that. And we wanted to, you know, we want to work with, you know, the four key things about eyeball is the liquid's going to be right. Would, would, would I drink it? Would Barry drink it? Would any of the guys who work for us drink it? You know, it's a decision we make collectively. Does, does the bottle look good? Does it look good on the back bar? Does it look good, um, on a retail shelf, the people behind the brand. We work with brand owners that we have a relationship with, and we want to have a long-term partnership with. It's not a question of we'll buy your booze, we'll sell it, we'll we'll send you a report in 12 months. We want to have a you know that relationship with them because our industry, from right from the top to bottom, is about relationships. Whether that's relationships within a bar team, within the kitchen, within the relationship between the, you know the front of house and the back of house, relationship between the customers and 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 the people working in the venue. It's all about relationships. It's all very well to be to have to have conversations when things are going great guns. But you want to have that relationship to be able to have those conversations where things are going great guns because you want to work with the brand owner in a partnership to make it great. You know, you want to be able to find a solution to problems rather than kind of ignore them going, well, this isn't working. Well, you're rubbish. Oh, well, this is your fault, your brand. You know, it's about having those conversations and doing it well. And certainly, if you look at what's happened over the last two years, you know, I mean, there's nothing can improve can say more than you know it's it's really important to have that to be able to to weather situations like that together
0: absolutely you want you yeah you need to have that relationship and who knew that this was coming like it did for the past two years you work together as a family to figure out the way for all of you to you know succeed in the best way they can in this troubled times really
1: yeah that's exactly it what one of the hardest things through covid was to see an industry that you've been raised in from a baby and everything you've seen and grown up around should suddenly disappear and all of those people that you've worked with on a day-to-day basis and the businesses whether that you know what and their jobs i mean it was it was terrible you know i mean thank god we've come through the other side but it was you know it was really tough for so many people and one of the things we wanted to do was try and create a positive story when we set up the drinks drop which was, you know, a COVID business. <laughs> and as you said there, it's about those relationships, mm-hmm. very much so. We were we were sitting there and thinking, well, what, what do we do? We can't just sit here and go, oh, well, we'll see what happens. That's just not the way we're made up. We want to find something to do. We want to find positivity. We want to find something to talk about. We want to try, try and do something about it. So when we set up the drinks drop, it was about how do we do something good for our because it was part of, originally, it was it was part of highball. We had a we had a warehouse full of stock sitting there. What are we going to do? Well, it can, we can it can sit there and it can wait, or we can try and do something. We can try and do something positive with it. We can try to do something positive for our, our brand partners, who you know who are looking at saying, what you know, what do we do here? And also, more importantly, what we're we trying to do something positive for our industry. You know, in the small in the small way in any way that we can. It's a small way. We're a small business, but at least we can, can do something. Um, so that's why we set up set up the drinks shop. That was. Well, we went live on the 6th of April was our, was our go-live date. You know, we closed our office on the 13th of March. Barry and I had started to have conversations and then with a the wider team, having conversations about what we're going to do here. Barry had actually gone managed, managed to get out to Australia Luckily, his, his girlfriend was out there. He managed to get a last flight out and he was in, sorry, not Australia, in New York. Um, so we were on different timings, but we were kind of almost, it was almost like we were almost working 24 hours a day. So we, you know, we'd be chatting at some point and then he'd probably do some stuff for the day while I'm, you know, a bit behind and vice versa. But we managed to get within just over three weeks, we got 20 bars signed up. We created a, an e-commerce platform, a new website. We found a production space. We created a brand and went live with, uh, uh with a full e-commerce platform. In, in just over three weeks and that's what we did with the drinks shop which was you know I mean it's an incredible achievement
0: yeah that is so incredible that I didn't realize that it was so quick it was so so quick especially you know as you were saying you wanted to do something we we had no idea what the future held it could have been like this for more than just two years you know it, it, you were <laughs> you were super quick
1: yeah we were I think we were one of the the first the first ones out of the blocks to do it to do it at, 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 at all because i know there was a lot lot of venues understanding we were trying to do it as well we were even before some of the venues trying to jump on that and we had and we'd got a full full business set up you know we were i mean i guess we had lucky because we had the team behind us to do it we had the stock there to do it we had a network of bars that we could tap into you know we could only there was only 20 bars that we could do we did 10 in london 10 in manchester we wish we would have done more but it would have been impossible to do that but it was about how do we how do you give these bars something to talk about as well, for them to be able to do something positive, for them to be able to have feeling, a feel a feeling of of worth? Is there something to do? So yeah, it was it was set up very quickly. It was about giving money back to the bars. It was about employing out of work bartenders. There was one text that came through within a couple of within a few weeks. Actually, one of the guys who was helping us up in in Manchester. Even now thinking about it, it makes me feel quite emotional. He sent us a message, because he was delivering for us on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. He sent us a message on a Monday and he says, You have no idea how much you're helping me out. He says, it's it's not it's not about the money. He says, But knowing that I'm going to be working and doing something on Thursday gives me a reason to kind of carry on this week because I know I know I've got something, I'll have something to do rather than just sitting in the house waiting. And even just those few hours a week made a huge difference to what he was doing. And this, you you forget that, you know, these these guys are going from uh-huh. The most social, one of the most social jobs in the world. To literally sitting at home, not not doing anything. I mean, you know, the impact that that had for for so many people, and probably you yeah. know, I mean, the impact is probably ongoing for some people. You know, it didn't didn't disappear. But you know, I mean, I don't want to talk about doom and gloom, but it, it was challenging. But we, we, you know, our our point was to try and do something positive, and the fact that we do something positive was, you know, again, it feels like one of the best things we, we we've ever done, without a doubt. It, whether it worked as a long term is irrelevant. That's not why we set it up. It wasn't. We we didn't, you know, until we spun it out as a standalone thing, which was wasn't until September last year. You know, for those first fifteen months, it, it there was no money in it. You know, there was no money at all. You know, we were supporting it 100% through us. But what we managed to give back in guys that were employing in London, the people we were employing for production and moving in Manchester, you know, and over those 15, 15 months, what we're giving back to the bars is revenue from the cocktails. You know, we're talking 50, 60, 70,000 pounds, which we'd, we'd given, we were managing to generate that money to give back out. And for a small business, you know, so for us, it's an incredible sense of, an amazing sense of achievement, an amazing sense of achievement.
0: Were you surprised about how how quickly the cocktail delivery took off in this country? Yeah, it's a weird one. Yes
1: and no. I mean, surprised, but kind of just, it made sense. The convenience sector has been in massive growth for, for, for a long time. We've seen it in massive growth for a long time. You know, the convenience sector in the UK is worth over 40, 50 billion. worth a lot of money. Uber Eats, Deliveroo goes on and on and on. It had never translated into drinks in, in the same way in, in that kind of, pre-made ready to drink cocktails at home you know there there was some kits where you can buy you know the bits and bobs and you make your cocktails at home and they're 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 brilliant but there was i guess there was some reservations or some maybe lacking confidence of the drinks you can get pre-made delivered to your door one of the things that covid certainly did was through necessity people go well we'll just try it and by trying it, they go actually this is this is really good, and certainly from our from our side, you know, we chose some of the best bars in the UK to partner with. They gave us the recipe. We've replicated that as best we can, and we send that out to people's houses. This is, you know, we're talking some of the top fifty bars in the world, and you're getting a cocktail from these guys delivered to your door for seven pound fifty a drink. It's, you know, I mean, it's amazing.
0: Yes, it, it does seem like a no-brainer, but at least for me, and again, I can only speak for me, the fun of having a cocktail is the whole going out to a bar, watching someone make it, who is much better than I at making something at home. And it's it's the whole package. It's the whole package. And I think people really just wanted a teeny bit of that. I know I did. That's why I did. You know, I wanted to support, also support my friends in the bar bar industry as well. And that's why I bought them. But the, the common punter who doesn't know anyone really just wants that experience. And if that little you know bag of cocktail is going to make it, that made our COVID experience so much better. And you did feel part of
1: something. Yeah. I mean, you've absolutely nailed it. Yeah, it was very much it almost gives people that almost a sense of don't want to say normality, but feeling as though they're still getting that kind of you know, that you know, going out for cocktails is, is it's a real treat. This it's exciting, it's it's great, it's socializing, you know. And this hopefully cocktails Angle can continue. It will never take away from the experience of being in a bar, nor should it, you know? It you should you should should never have that. But I've think people are realising it certainly has its place. Without a doubt it's got it's got its place. I mean I, I love going to bars but I have a I have half a dozen uh drinks shop cocktails in my freezer at all times because sometimes you just want a cocktail and I make cocktails you know I can make great cocktails I mean you know my my, my wife is, at first she was like why would why would we need them I mean if we want a martini we'll make a martini you we'll make, you'll just make one for us and then when she tried he's like actually, this is amazing. <laughs> this is just so easy. You just take it out of the freezer, leave it for, you know, 10 minutes to get to, you know, liquid and pour it in, and you're done. It's just like, this is great. And it is, it's a very different, it's a really enjoyable experience. Nothing like being on, uh, in a bar and like we like we both agreed, you know, it's should never take away from that experience and in, and never will. But to be able to enjoy a great cocktail with friends at home, certainly now coming into summer, barbecues, but you know, Throwing half a dozen pouches into into, into your esky and going for a picnic, I mean, why not?
0: <laughs> it's the best. I know that I'm not the best bartender. I didn't train. I can certainly make a gin and tonic pretty easily, but it's so much nicer. And also for my guests to say, "This came from Nine Lives. This came from somewhere else. This came from Swift. This came from wherever," and they made it. And this is why it's so good. And it's so. It also introduces them to that bar if they haven't been there before. And then they're going to want to go to that bar, at least now that we can. You know, I think it's also a way to give back. It's not just showing, oh, here's a brand of alcohol and I can make my own drink. But here are the people and get to know the people behind what you're drinking through this one little patch of liquid. And it's its, its own story. So, yeah, definitely. I'm so glad it has the place and will continue to have the place yeah, in our fridges. I,
1: I mean, one of the nice things about lockdown... Was people were, they felt they could go on, on an, almost like on a little bar crawl because they could pick the bars that they maybe never been to, but always wanted to go and almost feel like they're experiencing. You know, they could be in East London, they've going for a drink in the Trailer Happiness on a Friday. And I'll oh, let's get a couple of Trailer Daiquiries and feel like we've gone to Trailer Happiness. And, but also, you know, as it kind of carried on and the trades open again, you know, we do order before, order before two o'clock and you're getting uh, next day delivery. So for someone in up lean, they can be drinking cocktails from from London, you know, the next day. It's it's great, you know, and for the bars as well. It's it's exciting for them because it means they're reaching a national audience all of a sudden. You know, they're tapping into that national audience that, that may that may not have been able to to get to before. So I think there's uh, with, with what we do, we feel there's, there's there's a place for it. You know, there's a few other great at-home cocktail services that are out there as well i think there's there's certainly space for for more than us and i think it will continue it's it's the same way i guess you know making drinks at home is is great and i think we're now starting to shift in that when you order a takeaway you want to order your food to come to you and it's done right and you want to enjoy it if we can get it, it's always getting to that same experience now it's like well i want to order i want some nice drink tonight well if I know I'm going to get really good drinks, I'll just get the water to my house. You know, there's going to be no waste. I've got no fattering. I've not no cleaning today. I'm not going to worry about this. And they're just going to come to the house. I mean, we do a we do a three liter bagging box. You know, <laughs> watermelon margaritas. I mean, if that's not going to get your barbecue going, you know.
0: <laughs> All right. The big question now. So, are you settled, or do you are you thinking about um, what's next? What's next? Pretty settled.
1: I mean, we've just launched Highball in Australia. Congratulations. So that's, yeah, that's the next project, which is going off rather well. We lo- we started in, in lockdown, unfortunately, but um, we needed to keep the wheels turning. So we, we kind of went ahead and, and, and carried on with, with launching out there. Obviously, the brand partners have been understanding and being patient as, as we as we weather the, the storm of, of COVID over there. It's been a little bit different with how they've opened and closed, but Yeah, so that's the next project. I'm finally going to get out to meet the team, the highball sales team in September, which I can't wait. So that's the next thing. I think I'm settled. I'm really loving what I'm doing. I'm really, you know, I'm just very, very, I'm very fortunate to have, you know, to have ended up where I am. I I do genuinely mean that. You know, our industry's it's the best industry for me to, 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 to have landed in. You know, even though my parents didn't want me to go into it, I think they could see it was probably where I was going to end up. And to have managed to, to continue into it when I was having that, that bit of a low point being f- in full hospitality and, in owner operator, but managed to, to come through and, and be where I am now. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's amazing. It's brilliant.
0: I agree. I think it's totally amazing too. And, uh, congratulations <laughs> for all your successes. Okay. But before you go, I always ask two questions. Can you, since you've been a bartender and you certainly know drinks and the answer cannot be buy one of ours, do you have any top tips for the home bartender?
1: For the home bartender, I mean, ice is always a thing, right? You have to have ice. You know, a lot of the time you don't have the right ice or you go to the corner shop and it's not great. What I always have, what I always have in the the freezer is if you do have a takeaway, I take those takeaway tubs and I fill them with water and I just pop them in the freezer. I have always have two or three takeaway tubs of ice, so like a little block ice in the freezer at all times, just so as I know that I can just get a small knife chip away and I can have some nice chunks of decent ice at some point. If I want to have it with a cocktail, if I want to have it with a whiskey, I can always know. I know you can get the silicon mold, but you know, I just find having a stack of these three things in the freezer has always been a bit of a godsend for me. And it's Means you don't need to buy anything. You've got you know, it's easy.
0: I love that. No one's ever said that. I like that one. I think I'm gonna do that. I have some in the back there. Now, um last but not least, if you could be anywhere drinking anything, where would that be? And what would you be drinking?
1: This is a tough one. Because hmm. I'm currently in, in the south of France. So it is actually quite is quite nice. But then when I am here, I'm being in London. So, you know, there's this, uh, I'm looking forward to getting back to London on, I'll be driving back Saturday, Sunday, but removing the two places where I live. I mean, it has to be, there's there's one place which I, I can never get back to quick enough and it's the Seychelles and it's drinking a rum on the beach in the Seychelles with obviously a, a good friend of mine who has the distillery out there, Takamaka, but I, I, there's something about sitting on the beach and drinking a drinking a rum uh, with and just watching just just it, everything just disappears. It really feels a, it's a really special moment. The first time is great, but every time I've done it since, I've been lucky enough to get out there f- a couple of times. But it doesn't it, it the shine doesn't wear off. It, it feels magical each time. There's something just great about it. So yeah, I know it's not a venue, but there's a that beach that beach and that distillery has got an incredible calling
0: oh i just want to jump on a plane right now and go there it sounds divine and no it didn't have to be it didn't have to be a venue so that's perfect well i can't thank you enough for spending the time with me telling me your life story it was so great it's been a delight to meet you and know you and i'm so glad that people are still buying drinks drops cocktails
1: thanks for having me it's been really nice talking to you sorry i hope i've not gone on too much you know (laughs) <laughs> From a shy kid, I've certainly found my voice.
0: There's no such thing. You can go on forever. It doesn't matter. But it was great to have you on the show. So I will see you around London and enjoy fans.
1: Yes, thank you. I'll see you soon.
0: Thanks so much to Fabrice for being on the program. I am thrilled that he was my last guest of season six. If you're in the UK, check out The drinks Drop at thedrinksdrop.com. We are so lucky. Fabrice shared one of the Drinks Drop recipes with us and it's our cocktail of the week. If you live in the UK, you can get this amazing apricot sazerac from Manchester's fabulous bar, The Daisy, via The Drinks Drop. Anywhere else in the world, you're lucky that they shared the recipe with us. So, add all of these ingredients to a mixing glass. 26 mls of Fanny Fougera Petit Sigu Cognac, 26 mils of Rye Whiskey, 12 mils of Apricot Liqueur, 3.5 mls of Demerara Sugar Syrup, four dashes of Jade Absinthe, and one dash of Angostura Bitters. Add ice and then stir, stir, stir. Then strain it into a rocks glass with ice. You'll find this recipe, more stirred cocktail recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at LushLifemanual.com, where you'll find most of the ingredients in our shop. I'm heading out on my first real holiday in three years, so I am bringing Season 6 of Lush Life to a close. Next week, I will be on the beach. So if you live for Lush Life, make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants you love and tell them how much you love them. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. We'll pick this up again in September when I have a surprise for you. Until that time, Bottoms Up!